Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 8350. Auto Manimal. When Glenn A. Larson ruled the world. The week of December 11th, 1983. Welcome, friends, to Retrogram. Pick a week between 1970 and 1990. Watch all of the sci fi, horror, superhero, and fantasy shows that week. Analyze them, turn them inside out and upside down. Attach some context to them, turn them right side out, shake out any lint or odd wads of fluff. Wait, is this about laundry? Anyway, then I tell you what I found, even if it's odd wads of fluff. And that left sock I've been looking for since 2015, which proves that wormholes are a real construct in space-time, connecting one dryer to another dryer, as I have long suspected. There are certain TV producers who have a knack for scoring hit after hit after hit. Jack Webb, Aaron Spelling, Stephen J. Cannell, Stephen Bochco, David E. Kelly, Dick Wolf, Shonda Rhimes, Greg Berlanti. Some of them have had multiple hit shows on the air at the same time, which is kind of an incredible feat considering how much time and energy they have to devote to oversight of each show. And then there are times when there are just multiple shows on the air, and not all of them are hits. Some of them, but not all of them. And that's the point at which we find ourselves with 70s and 80s uber-producer Glenn A. Larson, creator of countless hits, many of them in the genre wheelhouse in which Retrogram dwells. The week of December 11th, 1983, was a week that Larson had no fewer than three genre shows on at the same time, but one was on its way out, another was on its way in, and another was a reliable ratings favorite near the peak of its popularity. Oh, and there was an episode of the last great Jerry Anderson puppet series that week in the UK, too, just to keep things lively and, you know, puppety. This was also a week that Michael Jackson ruled the world. It had been a little over a week since MTV premiered a longer-than-usual video for the single Thriller, directed by a horror film director, John Landis, with a half-million-dollar budget at his disposal, which is probably more than some of these shows had. Clocking in at nearly 14 minutes, Thriller was something of a mini-horror film in its own right, but with a far funkier baseline than most horror films ever get. Let's rewind to a week where, as far as genre TV was concerned, Glenn Larson ruled the world. Writer, Season 2, Episode 10, Nightmares, aired Sunday, December 11th on NBC. The story so far. Undercover cop Michael Long's last case goes south in a big way. A big shot-in-the-face kind of way. Michael Long is officially declared dead, but he is still alive, having suffered severe injuries, including total amnesia. He's nursed back to health and wakes up with a new face thanks to reconstructive surgery. He's also given a new identity, Michael Knight, by his wealthy benefactor, Wilton Knight, founder of FLAG, the Foundation for Law and Government. Michael also has another ally, the artificially intelligent car Kit, designed by Wilton Knight, who then dies before he can tell Michael anything else. The head of FLAG is Devon, who gives Michael his marching orders for every assignment. Devon is usually found in or around an 18-wheeler that serves as a kind of mobile headquarters for Kit, as well as where its inevitable dings and dents get repaired by April Curtis. With FLAG's resources behind him, Michael and Kit take on cases that the police and the government officially won't, helping those in need of justice. Nightmares 
Michael and Kit are hot on the trail of a pickup truck whose driver and a passenger eventually ditch their ride at an abandoned hydroelectric facility, climbing over the dam to get away. Michael follows, but once he's on foot again, he's lost his quarry. Where did the guys in the truck go? Michael, who barely has any communication with Kit because of the thickness of the dam, spots a section of the dam whose bolts and other fixtures show no sign of the rust and wear of the adjacent sections. Secret door? Yeah, secret door. He goes in, and then it closes behind him. Inside the dam, among the pumps and machinery of the dam, he's pinned down by the two armed men. He races back out the secret door, but one of the bad guys has anticipated his escape route and is waiting from a much higher altitude opening to throw a grenade directly at Michael's feet. It goes off, throwing Michael into the concrete with enormous force. He's out cold. Michael wakes up dazed in a hospital. He's told that he's actually in better shape than most people would have been because he's in peak physical condition to begin with. That being said, he's had a concussion, he's got some bruised ribs, a nearly broken arm. When he is asked what his name is, he says his name is Michael. Michael Long. Whoops. Maybe there was more of a head injury than anyone realized. Also, Michael obviously doesn't recognize himself in the mirror. Once he's out of the hospital, he tries to go home, but his old apartment doesn't exist anymore. A car pulls up, and a woman calls Michael over by name, giving him a bag with two things inside it, a wallet with no shortage of cash, and a gun. She drives off without introduction or explanation. Devin and April show up at the hospital trying to find Michael, only to discover that he checked himself out under his birth name, the name of a man declared dead two years ago, the same name that Michael is now using to identify himself at his old police precinct. Of course, his old buddies on the force don't recognize his new face, but he knows Michael Long's serial number, his badge number, and that doesn't exactly endear him to Long's former fellow officers, because what they see is a total stranger trying to claim that he is their dead comrade in arms. One of them quietly slips away to call Devon at Flag, and Devon is delighted to hear the news. But Michael Long freaks out at the precinct and is once again on the run. As Devon and April try to follow this latest lead, Kit drives off on its own, having tracked Michael down itself. But Michael Long doesn't know any talking cars, so Kit suddenly finds itself in the position of having to chase down its own driver. And Michael Long thinks he's being chased by a goddamn ghost car that can make itself ramp at will, so this is not a reunion that is boosting anybody's mental health. Kit finally corners Michael, who pulls his gun with the intent of arresting the clearly insane driver but Michael is stunned to find there's no one at the wheel. So, just to recap, Michael Long woke up, found out that he's legally dead, can't return to his home or his job, and now he's having a very calm conversation with a talking car that's chased him into a blind alley. He gets into the driver's seat, at which point Kit locks the doors and drives Michael back to Flag at top speed, alerting Devon on the way. At Flag HQ, Devon and April try to catch Michael up on the past couple of years, but he doesn't believe them, and he leaves Flag with Kit still on his trail. He finally gives in when Kit implores him to get behind the wheel. They are a team, after all. But as Michael is learning all of Kit's tricks and abilities all over again, he sees gears turning. Kit takes Michael back to the dam to see if that can jog his memory. And it does. Michael begins retracing his steps, but Kit warns him of a sniper nearby. Michael barely survives a hail of sniper fire and climbs back into Kit, but the sniper vanishes without a trace. Even Kit can't find him. Where'd he go? Michael and Kit leave the dam with more questions than answers. One question has been bugging Michael quite a bit. Who was the lady who gave him the wallet and the gun? Kit analyzes the wallet, narrowing its origins down to one store. Michael follows that lead with his old police instincts and discovers that the woman who gave him those things was related to the man he was trying to track down on Michael Long's last undercover case. When Michael pays her a visit at her home, she seems to be expecting him, and she wants him to leave as soon as possible before her boyfriend comes home, because he is somebody who wants Michael Long dead. And hey, here he is. He attacks Michael, who takes another knock to the head, and momentarily recognizes Mr. Boyfriend as the grenade guy from the dam. Grenade Guy is about to chuck Michael off an upper-floor balcony, but Michael thinks fast enough to call for Kit's help. Kit shows up, opens the sunroof, and tells Michael to jump in, literally. 
Kit speeds away, even evading the police responding to the fight, and the car drives itself up into the flag mobile trailer. Michael still draws a blank when he's in the middle of what should be familiar surroundings, but he does realize that he has to go back and save the lady who tried to help him. April looks up some of the criminal background on Grenade Guy, and Michael and Kit are off to save the day. Driving back to the dam, it's all coming back to Michael. He even remembers the secret door, and into the dam he goes. The more he sees, the more he remembers. Grenade Guy is taken down, the girl is saved, Kit sustains some body damage, and Michael Knight is back in business. The End Starring in Knight Rider, of course, David Hasselhoff. David already had something of a following from his appearances on The Young and the Restless since 1978, so it was thought he would work just as well in primetime, and that's how he wound up on Knight Rider. It's a case where I'm not sure that the idea of the show as a vehicle for its star has ever been quite so literal. Just a few years after Knight Rider, David had a new starring role on Baywatch, which ran from 1989 through 2000, as well as a spin-off in which he also starred, Baywatch Nights, which ran for two seasons starting in 1995. In 1998, he was the first face of Nick Fury to grace film as the star of the Marvel Comics-based TV movie Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Since the Baywatch franchise ran its course on TV, David has, for better or worse, kind of fallen into this Shatnerian pattern of appearing in things where he's making fun of himself or making fun of something he used to star in. Now, once you factor in that whole drunken cheeseburger-eating video that went viral in 2007, about the only way you can hope to bounce back from something like that is self-parody, which brings us to where we are now. You know what, though? Shatnerian though it may be, or maybe it's Shatnerific, I'm sure it helps to pay the guy's bills. I can't knock him for hanging on to the bull he's riding, no matter what happens. I hope he finally gets another cheeseburger. When Kit analyzes the wallet, he makes the sounds of a spider in the Atari arcade game Centipede. There are some other Centipede sounds later, also uh, supposedly generated by Kit's circuitry. Now, this was only two years after Centipede landed in the arcade, so I'm going to hazard a guess that these sounds were not part of a stock sound effects library, but were recorded and edited by whoever was doing sound design for Knight Rider. And, I mean, to be fair, those are sounds generated by a computer, and all for a sound design budget of a, a quarter or two and a visit to the local arcade. Working really hard there, sound designer. Working really hard. Now let's have some real talk for a moment here. Okay, so, let's say that you are the this episode's lady in distress, because there was always a damsel in distress in every episode of Knight Rider, for, for good or ill, you know, it was the 80s, it was the formula. Okay, so you know your boyfriend is Grenade Guy. You know that he's dangerous and that you need to get away from him. Are you really going to take enough time throwing your hair curlers into a suitcase? that he is able to confront you about helping Michael Knight, this man he wants dead? I, I, I mean, okay, the best TV drama has some common elements, including characters you care about, okay, check, and people reacting and behaving realistically, even in scenarios that are obviously pure fiction. This is not that. She knows there is a very high probability that this is going to turn into a violent situation. Believable reaction? would be taking what you need, only what you need, and getting the hell out of Dodge as soon as possible. Unbelievable reaction? I need my hair curlers because there will never be another set of hair curlers. Really? Really? Leave the hair curlers. Get out before he comes back. What the hell? If you're trying to construct a moment of high drama and people aren't reacting realistically to the situation, the plausibility of the whole thing goes right off that fourth-floor balcony without a talking car to catch it. For the most part, though, this really is one of my favorite episodes of Knight Rider. Sure, there's the prerequisite action, but what we have for the most part here is a fun little bit of character deconstruction for Michael, and nowhere does the episode really dig into the real tragedy of it. I was getting to that part. Michael Long, a man who presumably had a life and friends and family outside of his police work, that's not the personality we want back. What we want back is the personality that kind of formed over time like a blister over the gap in Michael's real memory that contained that life, those family, and those relationships. 
where's the moral quandary of weighing whether to restore what's essentially an artificial personality or restore a real person who had a lifetime of real memories and relationships? Oh, no, 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 we can't do that. We want the artificial one back because that's our guy. I wish there had been a little more signposting on that choice there, maybe a little more a little more internal debate between, say, Devon and April. But otherwise, it's kind of fun to uh, reset the registers on Michael's relationship to Kit, to Devon, to Flag, to everything. Reset all of those to zero. Now, it would have been funny if he remembered the female technician character from the first season, but not the new girl who was only there for the second season, and then vanished without a trace when her predecessor returned. Now, think of her as the Dr. Pulaski of Knight Rider, except probably more popular. Oh, Auto Man, Episode 1, The Pilot, aired Thursday, December 15th on NBC. Walter Nebaker is a cop in the LAPD, but his attempts to be a beat cop on the street didn't really pan out. Walter's more geek than badass, and after a particularly disastrous attempt at policing, Walter is more or less confined to the department's computer room, making his contributions to the fight against crime from behind a keyboard and a screen. It's kind of career Siberia, except that Lieutenant Jack Curtis, a detective who likes to keep up with the latest advances, thinks Walter's giant computer terminal full of blinky lights might just be something useful. At the moment, Jack is asking Walter to cross-reference every piece of information about a recent series of disappearances of prominent scientists and engineers, all of whom disappeared on international flights. Walter's computer can even cross-reference the information it has with what's in the computers at the airlines, the car rental places, even other governments. It's as if Walter has equipped it with one of these newfangled modem things or something. Jack heads to the airport to chase down the latest lead, which brings him to a private plane still sitting on the tarmac, fueling up. Two men are leading a computer engineer to the plane, so Jack bluffs and says he's with immigration and needs to see some passports and papers. They're shown to him, but as he turns to leave, knowing that his suspicions alone aren't enough to keep the plane grounded, the two men pull guns and open fire on Jack, and then drag him aboard the plane. All of this is witnessed by Jack's informant, who has been watching the comings and goings at the airport. Back at police headquarters, Walter is, um, borrowing some time on the department's computer for a personal project called Automan. When he tries to execute the program, it starts drawing an enormous amount of electrical power from the rest of the building, and a shape starts to appear in mid-air. But then it disappears, and Walter's boss wants to know what in the world he's doing in there. So does Roxanne Caldwell, Walter's co-worker at the department, who saw the shape appear and disappear. Walter explains that it was an experimental hologram, a three-dimensional computerized supplement to the police force. Or at least it will be if he can get it working. Roxanne thinks Walter must be trying to program one of those newfangled video games or something. But has anyone noticed that Lieutenant Jack Curtis is, like, not there anymore? Yes, his car and his police revolver have turned up at a parking garage in the city, found after a report of gunshots was phoned in. It's nowhere near the airport. The chief is more annoyed than alarmed, just like Jack to try to keep all the evidence in an investigation to himself so he can be a one-man crime-fighting band and hog the headlines. Okay, so does anyone know where Jack really is? Yes, we do. Welcome to somewhere in Switzerland. The private plane lands on a private airstrip, and Jack, his arm in a cloth sling, is marched out of the plane along with the computer engineer, who has also been reported as missing back home. His host is the impeccably dressed English-accented Lytle Hamilton, who makes sure Jack gets proper medical care, but also tells Jack he'll be here for a while. As in, maybe for the rest of his life. The unspoken part of that is that the lack of cooperation will mean the rest of Jack's life will be a very short period of time. Oh, and Hamilton lets Jack know he's going to be interrogated. Welcome back to Somewhere in Los Angeles. Walter's at home in his basement, which has almost as much computer power as his office in the LAPD. 
Walter's actually been in his basement for a few days, trying to direct Auto Man's artificial intelligence toward the problem of finding Jack, something that no one else in the department seems to be too worried about. Roxanne drops by to see if he's okay, and to try to draw Walter out of his shell by asking him to a late dinner. Only after they've gone to the lights dim as Walter's computer again draws a massive amount of power, and there he is, gleaming, glowing, and kind of square-jawed, old-school Hollywood handsome. It's Auto Man! And there's no one there to greet him. Sorry, Auto Man. Walter and Roxanne grab a bite at a 24-hour Greasy Spoon diner, and some of the other clientele are a bit rough. When Walter tries to stand up to them, the lights dim, the room shakes, and there he is again, Auto Man! You have to admit, a glowing hologram suddenly appearing in the middle of a diner is kind of unnerving, and the ruffians beat a hasty retreat. Auto Man tells Walter he's cross-referenced all the information from Jack's investigation, and they have to follow those leads now, because, he warns Walter, at dawn when L.A. wakes up and power usage increases, Auto Man will cease to be there. Auto Man is accompanied by a floating ball of light called Cursor, which, at his command, generates a 3D sports car that's much more suitable to going somewhere fast than Walter's beat-up old car is. It can also make 90-degree turns that Walter finds jarring. They arrive at the headquarters of a private security company that happens to be the common denominator of all the disappearances so far. Auto Man reveals a couple more abilities. He can adjust his molecular density so he can pass through things, and Walter can literally step into him and become part of him, at least for a little while, and can step outside of Auto Man again whenever he likes. Oh, and while he and Auto Man are one and the same, Walter is impervious to physical harm, which is really, really handy. Inside the building, they eavesdrop on a meeting being chaired by none other than Lydell Hamilton, who has warned that someone else working with Interpol was feeding information to Jack Curtis about the investigation. And Hamilton wants that informant found and... removed. Soon. Hamilton is not willing to wait for it. Auto Man, with Walter still part of him, tries to escape with this information, but his power is starting to drain. He has to hastily recharge from a wall socket for a moment to keep protecting Walter long enough to escape. Once outside, Cursor turns into the car again, and they're off, but they're being followed. Auto Man shakes off his pursuers easily, gets Walter home safely, and then tells Walter he's on his own for a while until Auto Man has enough power to manifest a physical existence again. Walter calls Jack's Interpol contact and arranges a meeting in Chinatown to exchange information. But as they are parting ways, Walter watches helplessly as she's kidnapped right in front of him by the same guys who shot Jack, the same guys who were trying to chase him and Auto Man. Walter is confronted by the captain for continuing to waste resources trying to follow up on Jack's investigation. Walter's job is on really, really thin ice. Another detective, Smithers, comes to visit Walter in the computer room and quietly pulls a gun on him. Smithers is dirty. He's in on whatever is going on. He's leading Walter out of the building when Auto Man and Cursor appear to protect Walter. But after Auto Man and Walter make yet another getaway, it's off to LAX to try to stop whatever private international flight is almost certainly there to take Jack's Interpol contact away, never to be seen again. The plane takes off, but Cursor converts from a car to a sleek, futuristic jet, following the plane to Switzerland. But the international flight takes its toll on Auto Man and Cursor. They disappear on the landing strip, leaving Walter on his own against whatever awaits him. Which, of course, means Walter gets captured pretty quickly. He, Jack, and Jack's contact, Tanya, are being marched away to be executed under cover of darkness. All the engineers and scientists who have disappeared are being held at Hamilton's compound to... Do the same kind of work they used to do, for free. They have amenities, skiing, swimming, women in bikinis, but no freedom. And execution might affect morale just a little bit. It's kind of unnerving. An execution that doesn't happen because, hey, it's Auto Man! He teleports himself right on top of Walter, protecting him from Hamilton's men, who are not throwing away their shots, and yet they kind of are. But they still can't do anything to Walter or Auto Man. Hamilton and his thugs drive Jack and Tanya toward the airport. Jack and Tanya are left on the tarmac while Hamilton makes his getaway in his private plane. Well, he thinks it's his private plane. It's actually an illusion created by Cursor. An illusion that suddenly ceases to have any physical tangibility at 30,000 feet. So much for Hamilton and his right-hand man. They're helpless. Okay, 
Enough with the Hamilton references. Back at the LAPD, Jack is back on the force. Tanya has returned to her work at Interpol. The case has been solved. And Walter gets back to letting the captain walk all over him because it's the best way to deflect awkward questions about what role he played in returning Jack safely to the States. Jack still doesn't entirely understand who or what Auto Man is, but he does know that Walter and Auto Man are going to come in really handy in future investigations. The end. And also, go to 10 and run. Auto Man's special effects concepts are credited to Donald Kushner, who also worked on Disney's 1982 movie Tron. So if you ever wondered why your DVD of Auto Man claims that Auto Man, clearly a Glenn A. Larson production, was brought to you by the makers of Tron, that's the very, very tenuous connection. However, if you think that's the only way that Auto Man was humping Tron's electronic leg, you really need to derez those notions right now. There was actually an Auto Man action figure. Not a figure of Walter, just a figure of Auto Man, and it was very similar to how Tommy did the action figures for Tron, with details painted onto a figure molded in translucent plastic. I mean, really, you could have had Tron and Auto Man team up and fight crime. Tron could have loaned Auto Man a light cycle. Cool! By the way, the Auto Man figure is exceedingly rare. If you go looking for it on eBay, be ready to see some prizes that will take your breath away for a single action figure. It's going to be pretty expensive to uh, try to start an Auto Man empire. Obviously, the way the effects were done in Tron were... That was simply not going to work for a TV series with a weekly production schedule and a much lower budget. So a whole different way of achieving a not really similar effect had to be devised. The answer was our old friend Front Axial Projection, which should never, ever be abbreviated because that would work out to FAP, a word that should never, ever be in the same sentence with Auto Man. Just in case you missed it when we discussed it way back during, I think we were covering the Doctor Who story, uh, Death to the Daleks, because the Exelons were uh, were also done with front axial projection. Um, front axial projection uses a ring of lights attached to the camera. They are actually around the camera lens, so the lens never sees them. The light from that ring of lights is reflected back at the camera when they hit a special reflective material on a prop or a costume, sort of like the reflective material on traffic signs. And for Auto Man, the raw film footage was further processed in post-production so that the brightest areas of reflection created by the front axial projection process were used to key in a film animation loop of the blue electrical energy that we assume Auto Man's whole body is made of. It's still a time-consuming and expensive process, so in the weekly episodes made after the pilot, excuses were built into the story to have Auto Man cover up his outfit with normal clothes, thus reducing the amount of fapping going on. Oh, oh. See, it should never, ever be abbreviated. In the pilot, this effect was also combined with some backlighting effects, which would not carry over to the rest of the series. Anytime it was seen in later episodes, it was probably a clip from the pilot or from some pre-production effects tests. This is a proud Glenn Larson tradition, by the way. You splash out lavishly on effects in the pilot, and then reuse the hell out of those effects shots relentlessly in the weekly episodes to save money. See also just about every shot of every Cylon ship ever in Battlestar Galactica. Auto Man stars Desi Arnaz Jr. as Walter Nebaker. Now, Desi is obviously the son of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, so he's been in front of cameras pretty much since he was born, appearing with his mother in The Lucy Show and Here's Lucy. He also made guest appearances in The Brady Bunch, Night Gallery, Love American Style, The Love Boat, The Streets of San Francisco, and Matlock. Auto Man was his only series regular role as an adult or away from anything to do with his family's projects. His final acting appearance on film before leaving Hollywood was as his own father in the 1992 movie The Mambo Kings. Chuck Wagner is Auto Man. A former child actor whose first screen credit came at the age of five, Chuck got his first and only series regular role here. A handful of guest appearances followed, one Life to Live, Dynasty, Matlock, but Chuck's heart and the bulk of his future career was on the stage. He's played both Inspector Javert and Jean Valjean in different productions of Les Mis, and the dude can sing, and he is also a well-respected historian of musical theater. But 
never write off Auto Man. Chuck might have made a cameo appearance in a video production demo hosted by Stargate Atlantis star David Hewlett called Hewlogram. And, well, I'm not going to spoil anything. You kind of have to watch it for yourself. And I have included it on the show notes page at thelogbook.com slash retrogram. We'll undoubtedly run Auto Man's program again at a later date, so we'll save the legendary Robert Lansing and other cast members for later. Now, guest starring in the pilot episode of Auto Man was Patrick McNee as Hamilton. Now, you'd think anyone who would look at a meaty villain role like this and think that would be enough, but not McNee, for he is John Steed of the Avengers. Don't forget, McNee had also worked with Glenn Larson already, appearing as Count Iblis in Battlestar Galactica and providing the voice of the Cylon's imperious leader. He made guest appearances in One Step Beyond, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Twilight Zone, Night Gallery, Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, The New Adventures, The War of the Worlds TV series, and Super Force. And this is just the stuff that kind of falls within the retrogram wheelhouse. One of Jack's first lines... I kind of like this one. There are crooks out there with computers as big as yours, not to mention newer. And is that line ever ahead of its time? Ask anyone who has ever done IT work or works in cybersecurity. Now, Auto Man was only so far ahead of its time because I, I really like the VU meter that is labeled with an incorrect spelling, circuit, C-U-R-C-U-I-T, overload. Um... Okay. Auto Man tells Walter that he and Pac-Man are close friends, but that he doesn't think much of Donkey Kong. So I, I feel like we were denied an, an Auto Man animated add-on to Saturday's Supercade here. The two ruffians with speaking parts in the diner scene are actually sci-fi royalty, no joke. The most intimidating one is none other than the legendary Sid Haig, a.k.a. Dragos, Master of the Cosmos, from Jason of Star Command. Sid had previously worked with Glenn Larson, appearing in the season finale of the first year of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and he had been appearing in background roles in shows like the original Star Trek, where he was one of Landrew's followers, and the Adam West Batman series, where he was a henchman of my favorite TV Batman villain, King Tut. He also guest starred in episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, Electro Woman and Dyna Girl, Misfits of Science, Amazing Stories, and Werewolf. But these days, he's probably best remembered from appearing in a string of Rob Zombie movies as Captain Spaulding, The House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, Three from Hell. We sadly lost Sid Haig in 2019, and by all accounts, despite the fact that he was almost always cast as a menacing tough guy, he was apparently the nicest guy imaginable. His cohort in the diner scene, his fellow ruffian, is Mickey Jones, a heavy-set bearded actor whose sci-fi fans may remember best as Chris Farber, the gun-toting, bomb-making sidekick of Michael Ironside's character in V the Final Battle and the first few episodes of V the Series, in which Mickey's character became an early casualty to thin out a large, expensive cast of regulars and to make it seem like the surviving regulars were not invincible. He also appeared in Misfits of Science, The Incredible Hulk, ALF, Probe, and quite a few other TV series of the 70s and 80s, as well as movies like Starman, Total Recall, and Sling Blade. Like Sid, Mickey was often cast as ruffians, and thanks to his natural-born Texan accent, unruly rednecks. Sadly, we have also lost Mickey. He died in 2018. The costume designer for Auto Man, presumably including Auto Man's reflective suit, was Jean-Pierre Droliac, who worked with Larson on Knight Rider, Battlestar Galactica, and the pilot movie of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. He also worked on Blansky's Beauties, Tales of the Gold Monkey, The Greatest American Hero, for which he of course designed The Suit, Airwolf, Matlock, and episodes of Quantum Leap. And you know, as unlikely a series pitch as it might seem to say, let's take Tron and put him in a buddy cop show, there's something kind of adorably cheesy about Auto Man. In hindsight, it's kind of sad that what should have been Desi Arnaz Jr.'s breakout role that had nothing to do with his mother or father wasn't, in fact, his breakout role. He kept plugging away and doing guest appearances into the early 90s, but after that, he was done with Hollywood. It's kind of sad because he kind of works as Walter. 
if there is a problem with him in this role, it is that he's actually too conventionally polite and conventionally good-looking to really be a computer geek who spends three days solid in his basement trying to create a hologram. I mean, that character should look more like, I don't know, me. Now, about the hologram stuff, let's just overlook that. Auto Man was not the first sci-fi show to be built on a foundation of really shaky scientific terminology. You know, it's right up there with the Juganet and the moon being blown out of Earth's orbit. So if we're going to start holding that sort of stuff against these TV classics and less-than-classics, uh, we probably don't have a show left to do. So that does not figure into my thinking here, just for the record. But Auto Man probably just didn't catch on because despite the fact that the movie was supposedly a box office bomb in its day, everybody pretty much knew what Tron was. And everyone pretty much knew that this show was, shall we say, making liberal use of some of that movie's concepts, to put it kindly. Or to put it less kindly, the viewing public knew that this was a Tron ripoff, and they voted with their remote controls accordingly. And now for something that occurs in every primetime show of any genre, a commercial break. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. Night of the Beast, aired Saturday, December 17th on NBC. The story so far. As a child, Jonathan Chase accompanied his father on an expedition into the wilds of Africa, during which his father was mortally wounded and revealed that he had the ability to transform into various animals, an ability that Jonathan studied and mastered. Now a professor offering insights to the NYPD, in the animal instincts driving the criminal mind, Dr. Jonathan Chase befriends police detective Brooke McKenzie. Well, okay, he'd totally be down with them being more than friends. And he and his buddy Ty, who he met during a botched military operation in Cambodia in the 1970s, offer to assist her in her investigations. And naturally, Dr. Chase turns into an animal or two in the course of each one of these cases. Manimal! Night of the Beast Ty is trailing the target of Brooke's latest case, but there's a problem. The target knows he's got a tail, and he pulls a gun on Ty. You know who else has a tail? Naturally, Jonathan does at the moment. He's turned into a horse that Brooke can ride to the rescue. So Ty lives to tell the tale. The man he was following is the pivotal witness needed to crack a major drug operation. It's a big win for the good guys, and we're not even five minutes into the show. Thanks for watching Manimal. We'll see you next week. Except we won't. More on that later. Since Brooke cracked the case, she gets a three-day weekend. Jonathan invites her and Ty to go on a camping trip to the sleepiest place he can think of, Birch Hollow. Peaceful, quiet, unbothered with modern society, just what they need to get away from it all. Cut to Birch Hollow, USA, as two mobsters back a car right through the front of the local newspaper. They demand that the paper's editor hand over the petitions, and they trash the place when he doesn't hand over the petitions. Elsewhere, on the lonely back road into town, Jonathan swerves to avoid a skunk in the road, and while he doesn't quite wreck the car, he leaves it in a state where it's going to have to be towed. Fine, then. We'll head into Birch Hollow on foot. 
They try to hitch a ride from any number of expensive-looking late-model tinted window cars and limos that go speeding past, but they only get faces full of mud for their trouble. Finally, a quirky old farmer named Zeke and his wife give them a lift. Zeke and the missus are moonshiners, too, and Zeke's full of... Tales of the mystic golden bear that he says used to protect Birch Hollow from evil. But the golden bear doesn't show up anymore because Zeke says people have lost faith in him. Kind of like the Great Pumpkin or the Tooth Fairy, I guess. Zeke drops Jonathan, Brooke, and Ty off, quite a little ways from the local hotel. He won't get any closer to it himself. There's lots of folks from out of town there, and they're up to no good. At least that's what Zeke says. When the three wary travelers try to get rooms at the hotel, they're curtly informed that none are available. The entire place has been reserved by a private party with deep pockets. Ty and Brooke do a bit of bluffing. A quick flash of Brooke's badge and a little story about how they're undercover agents on assignment, and suddenly there are three rooms available. While the others are getting cleaned up before dinner, Jonathan spots some interesting flora near the hotel and goes outside to investigate only to find that a woman named Maggie is pointing a rifle at his back. She wants to know where her brother is, and she drives him to a cabin out in the woods where she holds him hostage until a couple of men in suits burst in the door. They're looking for the petitions, and this time they find them. That's about the time that Jonathan bursts out of captivity in panther form, chasing the mobsters off and even putting out a fire that they try to start as they retreat. Good kitty. Back at the Birch Hollow Hotel, Brooke and Ty are thinking of having dinner in the hotel's restaurant, but they can't help but notice how many well-known mob figures are already dining there, wannabe godfathers and enforcers alike. They decide to snoop around and discover that they're all planning to condemn every home in Birch Hollow so they can bulldoze everything and build a multi-million dollar casino resort, sort of like an inland Atlantic city. But Ty and Brooke are caught as they eavesdrop, and they discover that Birch Hollow's sheriff is in on whatever plan this is. And the plan, as Maggie relates to Jonathan, is to overturn Birch Hollow's law against gambling. That's why the petitions were such a big deal. And without them, there is nothing to stop the corrupt members of the city council from selling everyone up the river. Literally, the city council members and the sheriff are on the take, and they stand to make some serious bank while all of the townsfolk would be left homeless and penniless. Maggie's brother, the newspaper editor, is on the council, but he's the one member of the council who knows enough to vote against the others. And he's gone missing. The mob has him somewhere. Jonathan pays Brooke and Ty a visit in the county jail, where his super-sensitive hearing has already picked up the sheriff's plans to do away with the two inconvenient prisoners. Not long after Jonathan fails to bail them out the way one normally bails people out of jail, a large bear bursts through the wall of the jail, allowing Brooke and Ty to escape. The bear disappears. Zeke and his old lady appear, though. It's the golden bear! It's gotta be! The good news is that Ty and Brooke are free. The bad news is Ty took a bullet to the leg, and the sheriff's deputies and their dogs are already looking for them in the woods. But who finds them in the woods? Jonathan does. They make their way to, oh, oh, hey, it's Zeke's place. The sheriff is watching, however, and he and his deputies move in. They're not here to serve search warrants or make arrests. They're just here to kill. Worse yet, they're terrible shots, so they leave a bunch of holes in the barrels containing all the hooch. Oh, no, the hooch. Zeke grabs a couple of shotguns out of the closet, and we've got ourselves a good old-fashioned shootout. Looks like them Duke boys are going to... Oh, sorry. <clears throat> wrong show. Brooke has the bright idea of using some of the leaking hooch to make makeshift bombs somewhere between Molotov cocktails and grenades. But they do the trick, kicking up enough dust and dirt into the air to cover Jonathan, Ty, and Brooke as they make a run for it. The crooked sheriff and his deputies follow and walk right into traps set by Jonathan. Jonathan also has a clue as to where Maggie's brother is being kept, so he turns into a hawk and leads Ty and Brooke to the spot because, you know, he couldn't just tell them where to go. They don't have GPS. It's only 1983. They overpower the thugs and break Maggie's brother free, taking him to the big city council vote. The whole town is there. Well, except for the sheriff. I wonder where he is. Even Zeke is there. Before the final vote can be cast, a bear bursts through the windows of the Birch Hollow Hotel. Guess who? The bad guys are rounded up. The truth comes out. Birch Hollow is saved. Maggie is reunited with her brother, and the day, as they say, is saved. The end of the whole show. Because this was the last episode. 
Manimal starred Simon McCorkendale. Born in England, Simon's first role was an uncredited role in an episode of Orson Welles' Great Mysteries. Man, if there was a retrogram drinking game, you would have just taken a shot. Simon went on to appear in I, Claudius, Hammer House of Horror, and the 1979 Quatermass miniseries. And he is probably the only actor in the entirety of IMDb whose CV jumps from Quatermass to the Dukes of Hazard. He went on to much bigger things from here, a lengthy stint in starring roles in Falcon Crest and Counter-Strike, and the British medical drama Casualty. We lost Simon in 2010. Melody Anderson is Brooke. Now, you're already listening to Retrograms, so I'm going to say the odds are pretty good that you remember Melody Anderson from the 1980 Flash Gordon movie where she played Dale Arden. But did you know that before that, she had guest starred in episodes of Battlestar Galactica and Logan's Run? She was a familiar face on the TV guest starring circuit with a recurring role on Jake and the Fat Man, a lengthy run on All My Children in the early 90s, all before she ducked out of the Hollywood limelight to concentrate on other areas of art, such as sculpting, as well as a career as a social worker, an area in which she has a master's degree. Manimal and really a lot of her acting are very minor entries in Melody's work history. Michael D. Roberts is Ty. Michael was already a familiar face from shows like Beretta, and he played a role in the Knight Rider pilot, but he was not the first actor to play... Tyrone Earl in Manimal. That was Glenn Turman, who played the character only in the pilot. Michael also guest starred in episodes of The Incredible Hulk, Airwolf, and Quantum Leap, and appeared in movies such as The Ice Pirates and Rain Man. He's one of the stars of the syndicated sitcom The First Family that aired between 2012 and 2015. Now, we've already talked about Jeff Corey in other installments of Retrogram, and Jeff brings his unique brand of backwoods crazy to the role of Zeke, and I, I love Jeff Corey. <laughs> He's an amazing actor and, by all accounts, an amazing acting coach, which is a side career that he took up when he was blacklisted from Hollywood as a result of the Red Scare of the 50s and 60s. Now, we have here Gus starring as thug number one, Robert Englund although his name is misspelled Robert England in the credits. Now, this is a few months after Robert played Willie in the original V miniseries, a part that he would be playing again the next year in 1984's V The Final Battle. But you know what else Robert England was in in 1984? A little Wes Craven flick called A Nightmare on Elm Street. You might have heard of it. Robert England played a character in that movie called Freddy Krueger. You might have heard of him. So this is kind of the last gasp of Robert's minor TV guest shot obscurity before he became a big name. Well, a big name as long as Freddy was involved. Robert kept doing the TV guest star thing in between the various sequels to A Nightmare on Elm Street, but mere months after this episode of Manimal aired, a Robert Englund guest appearance was suddenly a big deal. We'll almost certainly talk about Robert again when Retrogram covers V, or a little 80s horror anthology show we call Freddy's Nightmares. This episode was written by Sam Egan. This is kind of an early career entry for Sam Egan, which may explain why it's not up to the level of Sam's later work. Sam had already written for The Incredible Hulk and Quincy M.E. by the time Manimal came calling, and would go on to write four episodes of Auto Man before turning out a dozen scripts for another Glenn A. Larson series, The Fall Guy. Sam wrote more than 20 episodes of Showtime's Outer Limits revival in the 90s, and then wrote episodes of Jeremiah and Stargate SG-1, as well as the script for the movie Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. With a proven track record as a writer and writing producer, Sam now ascended into the realm of the showrunner, overseeing such shows as Masters of Science Fiction, Sanctuary, Continuum, and ABC's 21st Century Revival of V. Scottish-born director Russ Maybury was directing TV back in the days of The Monkees, I Dream of Jeannie, and Bewitched, but he started racking up credits as a reliable genre action-adventure director in the early 70s with the TV movie Probe and the series that it spawned, Search. And those are definitely things that we will cover in other installments of Retrogram. He was behind the camera for the second and third Six Million Dollar Man pilot movies, but only directed one episode of the series proper. 
He directed numerous episodes of Ironside, McLeod, Marcus Welby, M.D., The Rockford Files, and Kojak, but only two episodes of Manimal, its first episode and its last episode. He directed a dozen episodes each of Magnum P.I. and The Equalizer, but during that same period he got fired in mid-production of an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And worse yet, the episode from which he got canned was that show's infamous third episode, Code of Honor, which Retrogram will probably bump into someday, and won't that just be a delight? Russ went on to direct 18 episodes of In the Heat of the Night. His last TV directing credits were broadcast in 1995. Russ Mayberry died in 2012. Now, where did Jonathan get the reins when he turned into a horse? Does he keep those in the trunk of the car just in case he knows he's going to uh, turn into a horse? I mean, it's kind of disturbing if you think about it. Now, you remember earlier we were talking about the proud Glenn Larson tradition of splashing out lavishly on effects in the pilot and then reusing those effects shots relentlessly in the weekly episodes to save money. That's why Dr. Chase turns into a hawk and a panther at least once per episode, because for the pilot movie where he turns into those animals, there were creature morphing effects done at great expense by movie effects master Stan Winston. And if Stan Winston turns your leading man into a panther and a hawk in the pilot movie, then by God, your leading man's going to turn into a panther and a hawk in nearly every subsequent episode, because that was not cheap to do. Now, when he turns into the horse, that happens off screen. And the same with the bear. So, yeah, only the panther and the hawk have uh, pre-produced morphing sequences. It's worth noting that Alan Silvestri scored all of the post-pilot episodes of Manimal, but man, that whole chase scene with Maggie and the thugs, any attempt at tension was really undercut by the slap bass. Now, I've written and said many words about soundtracks over the years, but I don't think the phrase, any attempt at tension was really undercut by the slap bass, has ever come up before, ever. This was Allen's first regular TV scoring gig since Chips ended earlier in 1983, but much like Robert Englund, Alan Silvestri would be breaking into the big time pretty soon. This episode of Manimal was the last TV he'd be scoring for a few years. His next major musical assignment was a little flick called Romancing the Stone, to be followed by Cat's Eye, Back to the Future, Clan of the Cave Bear, Flight of the Navigator, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Predator, The Abyss, you get the idea. Allen scored only two more TV projects for the rest of the 1980s, one episode each of Amazing Stories and Tales from the Crypt. Alan Silvestri was a film composer after Manimal ended, full stop. So that shows you what I know. I guess you stick some slap bass on a scene of Robert Englund chasing someone through a cornfield, and your career's gonna take off. Manimal had already been cancelled by this point since NBC in its infinite wisdom scheduled Manimal against Dallas on CBS, which was already a ratings juggernaut by 1983. Now, TV business types can talk about counter-programming all they like, counter-programming being the practice of putting a show out there for an audience that is not being served by the other stuff that's on the air at the same time. But let's call this what it is. This show was being sent to the TV killing fields, because I think NBC could tell it probably wasn't going to catch on. Now, sure, it made it to series, but it was a very short series run, and you don't put something that actually has a snowball's chance in hell of finding a real audience up against something like Dallas, which owns whatever night of the week it is on. And as for this episode, it's not a good one. There are so many cliches at play here that there's virtually no tension and no guesswork for the audience. You know, I brought up the Dukes of Hazard before. This seemed like a script lifted from the Dukes of Hazard. We know what's up. We know what's going to happen to fix it. Now, to be fair, NBC had axed Manimal only four weeks in, and this was just the last episode they were burning off in December, outside of a sweeps month where it could do no harm to the ratings. So it's not like this episode got the show cancelled, but even with that caveat about causation not equaling correlation. I think it's fair to say that this episode is emblematic of why Manimal had already been caged. But here's one last little postscript. Simon McCorkendale would return to this role one last time. 
In the late 1990s, Glenn A. Larson had a superhero show in syndication, Nightman, one of the glut of syndicated, vaguely sci-fi action hours that were crowding the schedules of Fox, UPN, and WB affiliate stations, sort of like the UPN station where I worked in Green Bay, Wisconsin. We carried Nightman. And it was glorious 90s cheese. The hero's muscular-looking suit looked like the monolithic foam rubber construction that it was, and that somehow made the show even more enduringly weird. In an episode of Nightman's second season in 1998, simply called Manimal, McCorkendale reprises the role of Dr. Jonathan Chase and comes looking for Nightman's help. So it was a cool retro rematch in the Glenn A. Larson not-quite-cinematic universe. Evidently, Manimal still had some more life in him yet. Terra Hawks, Season 1, Episode 11, Mind Monster aired Saturday, December 17th on London Weekend Television. The story so far, the year is 2020. Never mind that whole pandemic thing, Earth has even worse problems. Zelda and her twisted family are trying to take over the Earth by unleashing monstrous aliens and robotic cubes on an unwitting human populace. They've already taken over a Mars colony and are using that as the base from which they launch constant attacks on Earth. The only thing standing between Earth and total domination is the Terra Hawks, a top-secret group of alien fighters operating from a hidden base in South America dubbed the Hawks Nest. Each with their own unique abilities and vehicles, and an army of spherical robot soldiers called Zeroids, the Terra Hawks, led by Dr. Tiger Neinstein, battle Zelda and her invaders to protect Earth. And it's all filmed in super macro mission and Hudson color. The Mind Monster. Sistar and Young Star witness Zelda's latest invention. It's a box full of mist. But when he's invited to look inside, Young Star sees something terrible, something that chills him to the bone. Well, it's his aunt, it's Zelda. But according to Zelda, the box will show anyone who gazes inside that which they fear the most. And she can't wait to test it on the Terra Hawks. And with a laugh loud enough to be heard across space, Zelda has the box chucked out of her spacecraft towards Space Hawk, the space station from which Lieutenant Hero serves as the Terra Hawk's watching and listening station for approaching threats. Fellow Terra Hawk Kate Kestrel is there with him, and they contact Dr. Tiger Neinstein at the Hawk's Nest to let him know about the... uh... box. Tiger gives his okay to bring the apparently empty container aboard Space Hawk, but he warns them to expect the unexpected. Space Sergeant 101 and another Zeroid float out into space to investigate the box, ultimately bringing it into an airlock per hero's orders. Kate goes down to the airlock to look at the box, and 101 drills a small hole into it because... <laughs> why wouldn't you? What could go wrong? When Kate looks into it, she sees Zelda, but the Zeroids don't see anything. Kate returns to Earth, landing Treehawk at the Hawk's Nest. Shortly after Kate checks in with Captain Mary Falconer, a fellow Terra Hawk, Mary sees Sram, one of Zelda's monstrous minions. Hawkeye sees Moid, one of Zelda's creatures which can assume any shape. After a few of these sightings, Tiger figures out that something is in the hawk's nest with them, and that the Zeroids are immune to its effects. But Tiger has the ability to interface with the central computer in Hawk's Nest. If he can expose himself to whatever is causing these visions and trap it, his mind can be dumped into the computer and Zelda's malignant influence can be filtered out, dumped into a data storage device on a rocket, launched into space, and destroyed. Which they do! While all of this has been going on, Kate Kestrel is urgently needed in the recording studio to lay down the last track of her upcoming album since she's a pop star when she's not fighting aliens and the Zeroids have been playing phone tag with her recording engineer to buy her time to deal with this whole having visions of monstrous thing that's going on. Things wrap up with plenty of time for Kate to record the song. The End Mind Monster was written by Tom Katstein. In keeping with various character names like Neinstein, the scripts were often credited to some unlikely aliases to cover up the fact that Tony Barwick was writing almost the entire series. 
Terra Hawks was one of the last major Jerry Anderson productions of Anderson's lifetime, followed about a decade later by one last live-action series, Space Precinct. Since Terra Hawks was produced by London Weekend Television rather than by ITV and ITC Studios, it had a much smaller budget than the previous Jerry Anderson series that used puppets. So what is the difference between the supermarionation of past Anderson shows like Thunderbirds and the super-macromation process of Terra Hawks? It's the difference between actual elaborately rigged marionette puppetry and, get ready for it, hand puppets. The characters in Terra Hawks are all hand puppets. Now, they still have some pretty elaborate rigging for things like their eyes, which can blink and close, but they're hand puppets. That's what super macromation is. They're hand puppets. The opening and end credits were devised and animated by young Kevin John Davies, who would later go on to craft some lovely documentaries, such as More Than 30 Years in the TARDIS, The Making of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and filmed in Super Marionation. He also did animation work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit and directed the 90s Doctor Who direct-to-video spin-off Shakedown Return of the Sontarans. He did some animation work on the TV version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at Rod Lord Studios for the BBC in the early 80s, helping to establish that show's very distinctive computer graphics, which didn't actually involve computers at all. If you think you detect a similar vibe to the opening and closing titles of Terra Hawks, you're not wrong, and now you know why. By the way, if you watch the end credits closely, they take place above a Hitchhiker's Guide-style computer graphic, which, again, is not a computer graphic, but just traditional animation. It's showing a game of tic-tac-toe played out between the Zeroids and Zelda's cubes. And the game plays out differently in the end credits of every episode. I'm a big fan of Kevin Davies' documentaries about British cult TV, and for a while, on his YouTube channel, he had posted three parts of a planned four-part series the making of Blake 7, one segment to accompany each season. But because his documentaries dared to acknowledge that shows occasional dips into disco-era camp, which is actually a thing most of its fans love about it, those featurettes never made it onto DVD. They were turned down. They were refused. And now they're not even on YouTube anymore. Kevin, if you're out there listening, I would love to get you on this podcast sometime, just saying, because surely there are some tales to tell. Now, the Mind Monster. It's kind of a well-worn, comfortable old shoe of sci-fi TV concepts that sooner or later, in nearly every show is going to do an episode where something makes everybody see, react to, and relate to others their deepest fears, and we learn something about them in the process. Or maybe we learn nothing about them, and it's just a bunch of pointless dream sequences. Even Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine did this same basic plotline. Hell, Next Generation did it at least twice. I'm thinking three times. And it turns out that the Enterprise crew was scared of different things each time. So there's absolutely nothing new here, literally. Everything to be feared is a creature seen in previous episodes of Terra Hawks, and the box that makes it happen is literally a box with blue lighting and a fog machine in it. However, I will give the director some points for execution. You stick a wide-angle lens right on top of some of these already kind of unnerving puppets, and yeah, it's actually nightmare fuel. So, credit where it is due, this was directed by Tony Bell, and you know, Tony deserves a pat on the back for squeezing a handful of really unnerving moments out of a puppet show. When this stock situation shows up in a sci-fi series, it's really in the director's hands, because you're shifting the show into doing a horror episode for one week, and it's really up to the director and the cast to sell that. In this case, the cast is a bunch of hand puppets. So the stuff that actually works really is down to the director. Stand tall, Tony. By the way, like every other show discussed this week, Terra Hawks has had something of a revival in recent years, thanks to Big Finish Productions. Terra Hawks also had a video game, though it looked absolutely nothing like the opening titles of the show. It was a game for the Philips Video Pack game console, the European equivalent of Magnavox's Odyssey 2, and it was essentially a rebranding of a game originated in the U.S. under the title Attack of the Time Lord, a game which, despite all expectations of ten-year-old me, had not one thing to do with Doctor Who. Now, if you want to hear more about that, I actually do a whole separate podcast called Select Game, covering the Odyssey 2 and Video Pack, so come on over and try it out. I keep the pixels at just the right temperature.
One show on its way in, one show on its way out, one show sitting pretty in the ratings, and a puppet show across the pond. What were there more of, zombies in the thriller video or Glenn Larson shows on the primetime schedule? Either way, it was kind of a good week to be Glenn A. Larson. Now, which show comes out on top? Well, that's kind of like asking whether Kit or Autocar can go faster. And I'm going to call it Knight Rider is probably the best show that was on this week. We actually got some character stuff going on. Hasselhoff actually had to do a bit of acting, and that brought Mr. Feeney out of his usual wheelhouse, too. Uh, I'm sorry, I mean Kit. Though really, you could swap out April for Roxanne or Ty, or Devin for Jack or Brooke. And you've got a car. I mean, Jonathan Chase has a nice car. It's okay. Automan, he's got a car. Kit? Kit is a car. The best car on TV since the Batmobile or Old Bessie. But still, you can see a very distinct 80s Glenn A. Larson formula taking shape between these three shows. Team of three regulars, one star and two supporting characters, one of whom may nominally be calling the shots. Check. Main hero has an unusual ability or gadget. Check. And yes, I'm sorry, Kit is a gadget. You have to give Glenn Larson credit for arriving at a formula that worked and cranking out endless variations on that formula. But when you consider that created by Glenn A. Larson was a phrase that first appeared on our screens in 1971 with the arrival of Alias Smith and Jones, and that he then went on to create Switch, Quincy M.E., Battlestar Galactica, Sword of Justice, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, B.J. and the Bear, Manimal, Trauma Center, Automan, Masquerade, Cover Up, Half Nelson, Knight Rider, The Fall Guy, The Highwayman, Magnum P.I., P.S.I. Love You, One West Waikiki, Nightman, and he lived long enough to see Battlestar Galactica and Knight Rider successfully rebooted and modernized by others. That's not a bad track record for a writer and creator of TV shows. Had he lived a bit longer, he would have seen Magnum P.I. rebooted successfully as well. But as it is, we lost Glenn A. Larson in 2014 at the age of 77. But for this week in 1983... Glenn A. Larson ruled the world. The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme and other music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at freemusicarchive.org or betterwithmusic.com. A huge thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters for pitching in to keep the site and its various podcasts around. If you like show transcripts, early show access... And a few other goodies. Get yourself over to patreon.com slash the logbook, just like Philip and Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and Paul and Mark and Charles and Ashley have done. Holy cow, is it just me, or is there a new name every time I read this thing? If you want to pitch in, but don't feel like the monthly commitment, you can help us out at ko-fi.com slash the logbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com or by ordering, well, anything your heart desires through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. Any and all support is very much appreciated. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. Sci-Fi 5 is the newest show from Roddenberry Podcasts. Five minutes of sci-fi history in every episode, delivered to you every weekday from the first name in science fiction. Get to know the creators, the background, and even the science behind your favorite stories. Our rotating panel of hosts bring you some of the least known details about some of our best known popular culture. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite shows. Then get ready for a full year of great stories only on Sci-Fi 5.